0: This is Scott Archer, pastor of Central Congregational Church in La Mesa, California. Thank you so much for tuning into our Sunday Service podcast, CCC Sunday Messages. I hope you find the messages both challenging and encouraging as you seek to know and follow Jesus in your daily life. If you live in or ever happen to visit the San Diego area, we would love to have you join us for worship and fellowship for location, service times and other information about our church, please visit our website at ccclamesa.com. CCC is a small but passionate intergenerational church working together for the glory of God and the good of our neighbors near and far. Find your Bible or open your Bible app on your computer and let's get back into the Gospel of Mark. Uh, we've got this week, and then three more weeks, and we'll be done. After more than a year of going through the Gospel of Mark, we—if uh, all goes according to plan—our last Sunday in that in the Gospel of Mark should be the first Sunday of August. And uh, we have entitled this series getting in on the good news. And I hope, as you've heard these messages, I'm trusting that you've spent time reading through the gospel on your own. I hope that by the Holy Spirit this has been a source of good news uh, in your life. I know it has in mine. And and um, and I hope that it's been good news even in the places, and maybe especially in the places where it's made us a bit uncomfortable, where it's uh, shaken us up a little bit. Because really, um, the best sometimes the things we need the most that are the most healthy for us at the moment maybe don't feel so good uh, and don't look so good but in the long run they really are and we can look back and realize wow I really needed that so uh, I hope that that's uh, you've taken advantage of that and that you'll uh, just hang with us here as we uh, move forward and uh, so we're going to be in the gospel of mark chapter 14 looking at uh, verses. 53 through 72 um, this morning, and the title of this message this morning is the trial of faith, or the end of self-righteousness. And uh, you know, as we are walking through this time of pandemic and social unrest uh, nationally and globally, uh, as you watch the news, if you're a person that's online at all, uh, there's just no end. To commentary, whether it's uh, sort of official commentary from a news outlet or personal commentary on social media. And, um, you know, there, we all are going to judge those things differently sort of from our point of view. But one of the things that has struck me in uh, listening and reading is just an underlying current. Well, maybe it's not even so underlying. It, it, oftentimes it's very obvious, just a sense of real self-righteousness uh uh, that's, that's sort of backing what anybody and everybody's saying depend no matter what side of an issue they're taking. And that's not to say that there isn't a side, there isn't a uh, excuse me, that there isn't a right or a wrong in some of these issues, that there isn't places where we really need to be thoughtful about the way we're responding uh, to w- uh, one issue or, or another. Um, but it's it's not so much what's being said, even though it is sometimes. But it's it's how it's being said. There just seems to be a a real sense of I this is me and this is my opinion and I'm right. And we all ten- have a tendency to be feeling like we're the one sitting on the hill with the with the appropriate perspective of what's going on. And it just really smacks of self-righteousness, a lot of it. That's not true of everyone. And, and there, are some of, there have been people uh, on the news and through articles and online that have had some really helpful comments and really uh, guided us in some real ways. But I think if we're honest with ourselves and what we see going on, um, there's a lot of people just sort of feeling really confident about their opinion and not being afraid at all to share it. And here's the thing, uh, no matter what where we stand on some of the issues, and I'm not going to get into those this morning, um, it's entirely possible to do the right thing or to say something that is technically right and to do it in the completely wrong spirit. Can I get an amen? Thank you. I think I heard a few amens just then. Let me say that again. It's entirely possible to do or say the right thing, something that's technically correct, right, righteous, just, and to do it in the wrong Spirit. Um, and uh, and I think that's one of the things that this passage this morning, one of the ways it can challenge us. I think in all that we're walking through right now and especially for those of us that claim to be followers of Jesus Christ, there is a desperate need for humility to approach whatever issue we're dealing with, whatever person we're dealing with, whatever uh, we feel like we maybe need to say or do something to approach that situation, in a spirit of humility, in light of the work of Jesus Christ and in the light of the way he lived and in the light of the sacrifice he made for you and for me. Jesus didn't just do and say the right thing. Jesus did those things and he said those things in the right spirit and he did and said them as uh, in obedience to the will of his Father wasn't just him talking, and he said this over and over, I only do what I see the Father doing. And in our case, we need a big dose of humility uh, so that whenever we speak or whenever we act, that we are, we are doing that from a place of humility and a place of love and that we are learning to speak and act only as the Holy Spirit would lead us because he is the one that will lead us to do the will of the Father. So let me read the passage this morning from Mark chapter 14, and uh, then we'll walk through it together. Mark chapter 14, starting at verse 53. And this is right after, um, <clears throat> excuse me, this is right after Jesus has been arrested, and now he's going to be on trial. Uh, this week we're going to be looking at his trial before the religious leaders. And next week, we're going to be looking at his trial before Pilate, the governmental leaders, uh, as in which will move us into his crucifixion. So they, this member, Jesus was in the garden praying, and finally he said, enough, get up, here comes my accuser. And uh, Judas comes and betrays him with a kiss. And there's this whole group uh, sent by the uh, religious leaders. It says they're a group with, uh, armed with swords and clubs <laughs> to arrest Jesus. It says, starting at verse 53, they took Jesus to the high priest, that would be Caiaphas, and all the chief priests, the elders and the teachers of the law, they all came together. And Peter followed at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. There he sat with the guards and warmed himself at the fire. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin, the religious council, were looking for evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death but they did not find any. Many testified falsely against Jesus, but their statements did not agree. Then some stood up and gave this false testimony against him. We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with human hands, and in three days will build another not made with hands. Yet even their testimony did not agree. Then the high priest Caiaphas stood up before them and asked Jesus directly, are you not going to answer? What What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. And again, the high priest asked him, now he asked him very directly, Are you the Messiah, the chosen one, the anointed one? Are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed one? I am, said Jesus, And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. The high priest tore his clothes. Why do we need any more witnesses, he asked. You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? They all condemned him as worthy of death. Then some began to spit at, spit at him. They blindfolded him, struck him with their fists, and said, Prophesy! And the guards took him and beat him. While Peter was below in the courtyard, now this, this part with Peter, you have to see these events are happening simultaneously. Jesus is in there being tried and hit and mocked. It says, While Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came by. When she saw Peter warming himself, she looked closely at him. You were also with the Nazarene Jesus, she said. But he denied it. I don't know or understand what you're talking about, he said, and went out into the entryway. When the servant girl saw him there, she said again to those standing around, This fellow's one of them. And again, Peter denied it. After a little while, those standing near said to Peter, Surely you're one of them, for you're a Galilean. He began to call down curses, and he swore to them, I don't know this man you're talking about. Immediately the rooster crowed a second time. Then Peter remembered the words Jesus had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows twice, you will disown me three times. And he broke down and wept. Very poignant passage. So we get into the passage, you can follow along. Uh, there's digital notes through the you, Version Bible app, or you should have received an email that you could download a PDF of the notes. Here's the central thought for this morning. We get in on the good news when we learn to rely solely on the courage and the faithfulness of Jesus in contrast to our cowardice and faithful, faithlessness. We get in on the good news when we learn to rely solely, completely, totally on the courage and the faithfulness of Jesus in contrast to our cowardice and faithlessness. I want to start at the end of this, the second half of this passage, and in this hour of trial and testing that Jesus is going through, and now Peter's going through, because uh, even though Peter... uh, Peter said, I, you know, along with the other disciples, that we'll follow you anywhere. We'll even die for you. Remember, Jesus said, yeah, that sounds good. But he quoted the scripture and said, I'm going to strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. And they all did when they came to arrest Jesus. You remember, they all left and they all ran away. But here we see Peter trying to make good on his promise. And while Jesus is being uh, unfairly tried, here is Peter down below in the courtyard. And at first, he's just warming himself by the fire, um, with uh, the guards and everybody else that's in the area. And he's just trying to sort of stay out of the way but, but try to make good on his promise. But then, uh, a, just a young woman, uh, a maid, basically, of the high priest, recognizes him and they can tell by his dress and they can tell by his accent that he's not local and they, they know he's from Galilee. They know he's connected to Jesus. And, and knowing that, we don't know what they would have done, but, but this young woman feels the need to point Peter out and say, hey, you're with him, and we know what we just read, and we all, most of us know the story anyway, that three times in a row, just as Jesus predicted, uh, Peter hadn't just run away from Jesus, but now he verbally denies knowing him, and even on the third time uses cursing. Um, to, to, try to, to try to deny that and to separate himself from Jesus so that he will not experience either the shame of the moment or maybe he's afraid that they'll arrest him too. We don't know exactly what's going through Peter's head, but in this hour of trial, um, Peter's false bravado and his self-interest and his shallow faith are exposed at the first hint of persecution. He, just, he doesn't even make it past warming himself by the fire. And the very first thing I want to say, and I, this is a sermon with only two points, so you're lucky this morning. You should, uh, we should be done sooner than normal. But the first thing I want to point out is that in this hour of trial, we need to recognize that we are all Peter. Peter. When it comes down to it in our relationship to God and what he's created us for and what he's called us to and in contrast to what Jesus has done we are all Peter faithless cowards that contribute nothing to our own salvation. All of the disciples included Peter including Peter loved Jesus. They believed he was the Messiah even in, the, even in their limited understanding. But when it came to the point of Jesus actually walking through what it would take to redeem us and reconcile us back to God, to be, to be tortured and crucified and actually die, when that moment came, all of their courage, all of their bravado gave way to self-interest and, and self-protection. And they fled from Jesus and Peter even denied him. And we need to be honest that we are all in that same place that none of us bring anything to the table when it comes to our relationship with God. And and, and none of us bring anything to the table, even in our own ability to serve God in the way that he's called us to. But there's a hope in this difficult point. There's a really interesting passage in the book of Romans, chapter 11, starting at verse 28. The Apostle Paul says this, speaking of the Jews um, and the Gentiles, and he's speaking of the fact that the Jews at the moment are far from God. They've rejected, for the most part, the Jews have rejected Jesus as the, one, the Messiah that they've been waiting for. In verse 28 he says, As far as the gospel is concerned, the Jews are enemies for your sake, speaking to Gentiles. But as far as election or choice is concerned, they are loved on account of the patriarchs, the church fathers, the fathers of Israel for god's gifts and his calls are irrevocable verse 30 just as you were at one time disobedient to god have now you who were at one time disobedient to god have now received mercy as a result of their disobedience so they too have now become disobedient in order that they too may now receive mercy as a result of god's mercy to you a little confusing but here's the key verse verse 32 For God has bound everyone over to disobedience so that he may have mercy on them all. Think about that phrase for a minute and think about it in relation to Peter and the rest of the disciples in their failure in in this hour of trial. Paul says that God has bound everyone, all of us, over to disobedience so that he may have mercy on all of us. See, it's easy maybe to look from a distance at Peter and the disciples and say, wow, they were really cowards, man. They blew it. And maybe, maybe not, but maybe there's some of us that would say, well, if I'd have been there, I'd have stuck it out. But I hope that's not the case. I hope we know ourselves better than that. I hope we can recognize in our own lives all the ways we've already failed to live up to the lives that God has called us to all the ways that we've been cowardly or we've sought our own self-interest and our own self-protection and haven't followed Jesus on the way of the cross. But the good news in that is that I don't believe that in their own strength any of the disciples ever could have been uh, fulfilled uh, or, or walked the path at that moment that Jesus walked. And I think that's why he tried to warn them ahead of time hey, I hear, I, I hear your bravado, I, I see your desire to stick with me, even if it costs, your, your, costs you your life, but let me just tell you ahead of time, you're not going to be able to do it. And we recognize that this was a path that Jesus had to walk alone, and we'll look at that again in a moment. Paul says to, uh, again in First Timothy, writing to his young protege in First Timothy 1.15, here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance, and now he's talking about himself. Apostle Paul, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom, uh, whom I am the worst. The Apostle Paul, one of the greatest mind, Christian minds in the history of the world, one of the greatest thinkers, I think, in the history of the world, when you read his writings, um, and one of the most highly trained uh, Jewish leaders of his time. And yet, if it wouldn't have been for the grace of God and his vision of Jesus that knocked him off his donkey, he would have continued to round up Christians and throw them in jail thinking he was doing a God a favor. And so even though God is using him in powerful ways in writing and speaking and in miracles, he still has this deep sense of, That Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, and he's one of them. And he says, I'm not only one of them, I'm the worst of them, because I was actually persecuting the church of Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, in this time of confusion and conflict and so much self-righteous talk, can we have the humility to recognize our own brokenness, our own failure? are the ways we've let ourselves down and the way we, ways we've let God down and that we have all abandoned Jesus and left him on his own. And it is only by his grace, it is only by uh, the gift of his salvation and his Holy Spirit that we, we are able to enter in uh, and to be the people that he's called us to be and to speak and to act in ways that are truly honorable and truly faithful. So in this hour of trial, first of all, we need to recognize that we are all Peter, faithless cowards, and we contribute nothing to the work of God in our life and to our salvation. But then contrastly, we see in this hour of trial this amazing, the fact that Jesus stood his ground courageously and faithfully alone to secure our salvation, and he did it in full knowledge of our failure. So they drag Jesus before the Sanhedrin and before Caiaphas, the high priest. And they bring all these people in to bring accusation to him because they are looking for a legitimate, um, a, a legitimate charge before him because they want him killed. And we understand in the structure of the government between the Romans and the Jews, they didn't have the authority to kill anybody, to execute anybody. Only the Romans could do that. And so in order to try to get Pilate to uh, follow through on that, they felt that they had to have some kind of at least something that looked like a real charge that was worthy of execution. So they had all these different people come and say, well, we heard him say this and we heard him say that. And, and it tells us that they, none, none of them agreed with each other. And, and in amazement, the high priest Caiaphas looks at Jesus and said, aren't you going to answer any of these? And it And just like we're going to see when he stands before Pilate, it says he was completely silent in regard to any of the charges brought against him as he stood alone. He didn't try to defend himself. He didn't, he didn't say anything against the people that were lying uh, about him. And I want to just give a little bit of an aside here for a moment. We need to recognize that this trial before the religious leaders, and next week when you look at his, his trial before Pilate and the, and the governmental leaders, that Jesus was absolutely, completely innocent. And he was treated completely unfairly and completely unjustly. And he was murdered. Uh, his murder was a complete sham uh, and, and, and a gross violation of all that is right and true. And in that, we need to recognize that Jesus stands and is in solidarity with everybody throughout history and everybody in the world today that is oppressed and, and is experiencing inju- injustice. Uh, at whatever level, that is the side that Jesus is on, and that, and if you, and probably most of the folks I'm talking to right now, probably haven't experienced that those kind of things in a deep way, but maybe you have. But can you sense that any place in our lives where we feel that sense of injustice or oppression, or we see it in other places in the world, can we recognize Jesus is in complete solidarity? He experienced it. He was the most innocent man that ever lived, and so his trial and his unjust death was the most grievous there's ever been but they bring bring all these charges none of them agree the high priest says are you just going to stand there and he does <laughs> and so finally the high priest just looks at him and asks him directly are you the messiah are you the, the son of the blessed one are you the son of god and finally jesus answers and this is the first time that jesus says clearly who he is if you remember throughout the gospel Anytime a person or even the demon said, we know who you are, you're the Christ, um, That you're the Son of God, he would tell them to be quiet. But now was his moment, now was his hour, and standing there by himself in front of all of his accusers, in, in light of the question, are you the Messiah? He says, I am. That a powerful phrase going all the way back to Moses and the burning bush where God identified himself as the great I am, the very ground of being. He says, I am. And then he uses two phrases that um, he says, I am, and you will see the Son of Man, he refers to himself as the Son of Man, sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One, speaking of God, and coming on the clouds of heaven. Now, maybe that doesn't mean too much to us. It sort of just sounds powerful and, and uh, you know, uh, scriptural, but it had an amazing impact on Caiaphas and the rest of the folks there because he, he, he took a phrase out of Psalm 110 and out of Daniel chapter 7 to help them understand who he believed himself to be. Jesus stood there full of courage and full of faith by himself and he boldly declared his anointing, his calling, he truly is the Messiah, the chosen one of God, his divinity, He is the Son of God. He's sitting at the right hand of the Blessed One and his authority using the phrase, the Son of Man coming on the clouds of glory. The the religious leaders would have heard this in their own understanding, not just to say, yes, I'm the one that God has sent to free you uh to set you free from the romans and to reestablish israel but he, they would have heard him saying i am basically equal with god and i have all authority psalm 10 chapter 2 or chapter uh, psalm 110 verses 1 and 2 says the lord said to my lord sit at my right hand and that's what he he quotes that verse saying i'm the right hand man of god i'm in that place of power and then in daniel chapter 7 verses 13 and 14 in this crazy vision that Daniel has it says in my vision at night I looked and there before me was one like the son of man that's how Jesus described himself coming with the clouds of heaven he approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence the ancient of days being God he was given authority so the 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 religious leaders know this whole passage. All Jesus said is, I'm the Son of Man, and you will see me coming in the clouds of glory. But they know the rest of the passage. He, now speaking of Jesus, was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. That's the full context of what Jesus was saying. And at that moment, Caiaphas knew he had him. He says he tore his clothes in this dramatic act of of, uh, of you know grief, just saying, what more do we need? You've heard it from his own lips. He's claimed all authority, even over the Romans. What do you think? And they all said he deserves death. And now they felt like they had the charge that they could take to, to a pilot, to a uh, To get them to get Pilate to execute him, and so we see this incredible contrast between Peter warming himself by a fire, and he has a young woman that just comes and says, "Hey, you're with Jesus," and he just crumbles like a house of cards immediately. And in contrast to that, we have Jesus standing before the religious leaders and fully, fully in. in control of himself and the situation, and only at the right moment does he speak out and declare with full faith, full authority, full courage, I am indeed the Messiah, and I'm even more than you think I am. I am the very one that was prophesied that will one day have all power and authority over every nation and every kingdom. And it is that Jesus in that Spirit that took all of our sin and all of our shame and overcame it through his death and his resurrection. And he did all that at that moment. He made that declaration at the same moment that Peter was denying him. And he did it with the full knowledge that that was happening because he predicted it beforehand. So Jesus went to the cross with the full knowledge of the fact that you and I would deny him. You and I would not live up to our God-given calling. Romans chapter 5, starting at verse 6, you see at just the right time, while we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. And many of us know this last verse, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, while we were still deniers, while we were still cowards, Christ died for us. 1 Timothy, again, this is the rest of the verse that I read earlier, verses chapter 1, verses 15 through 17. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and let's all say it together, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason I was shown mercy, so that in me and in you, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. And then he says this in verse 17. Now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. That's who Jesus is, and that's who we are in relation to him. And in this current time of trial and testing, can we ask ourselves, how is our heart right now? And what is our motivation in any speaking and acting and maybe sharing online or with friends that we're doing right now? Are we coming at all those things from a place of self-righteousness, thinking we know and we're right and we're doing God a favor? Or like Peter who burst into tears when he heard the rooster crow, are we keenly aware of our own brokenness and failure? And we seek God's comfort, we seek God's forgiveness, and we lean into Jesus more than ever before and ask him to guide us and empower us so that when we speak or act or share, we do so truly for the glory of God and the good of our neighbors near and far. Let's pray. Father, this passage, as I've read it and studied it this week, has convicted me. Lord, I have uh, been following you for many years, and I've been in the church the whole life, and I just confess how easily I slip into judgmentalism, how easily I can speak with false bravado about my faith and faithfulness, or if I don't speak it out, how it creeps into my motivation and my understanding. And Lord, I thank you that at various times of my life, you've let me fall on my face, Lord. You've let me come to a place of recognizing just how truly broken and how truly uh, uh, what a coward I can be at times for various reasons. And Lord, I thank you that you didn't wait for me or any of us to look and seek after you or to finally get our act together, but that you stood your ground, you made the good confession of who you were, and you you went through the trials and you went to the cross and through it while we were still separated from you, at the very moment when we were denying you, that you did that because you loved us so much. And now, Lord, I pray that you would just forgive us for our self-righteousness, forgive us for our judgmental attitudes, forgive us for any kind of arrogance or ignorance that we allow to drive our words and our actions at times and help us once again, to joyfully and, and and yeah, just to and faithfully to humble ourselves before you, to confess our great need of you once again, to confess our confidence in you and your work on our behalf, cleanse us and fill us afresh with your Holy Spirit, so that we can work with you, speaking your words and acting out your actions in this world that you love so much. In Christ's name.